We're going to be in John chapter 4 today. John chapter 4, you could turn there or flip your phone apps or just look up on the screen. John chapter 4, verse 27. And here, John 4, we, we find ourselves right after Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman by the well. And we see the aftermath of this conversation. And the passage zeroes us in on Jesus' mission. Again, John chapter 4. If you got to say amen. If you don't have to say hold up. All right, sounds like everybody has it. Well, I'll read the passage and then we'll pray. This is the word of God. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you that you are on a mission, and that as we see you invite your disciples into that mission. Jesus, I pray that we would grasp a vision of the glory of what that means. Lord, we ask that you would make this scripture plain to us. Lord, would you give me preaching power that I might be able to make it plain. Lord, would you help me to expound the scriptures, to explain them, to point these people to Christ, to you. Lord, would you also give me conviction and boldness to preach. Lord, I pray that these People under the sound of my hearing would receive your word, that they would receive your word with faith and love, that they would lay it up in their hearts, Lord, and treasure it, that upon laying it up, they would practice it in their lives, that they would live it out. Lord, I ask that if anything comes from you, that it would stick and be remembered forever. If anything comes from my mouth that is not from you, I pray that it will be forgotten and wither away forever. Lord, we love you. Amen. So, there is a very, very serious condition going on in society today. It's plaguing our society. That this condition causes anxiety, 
It causes stress. It causes hurt and pain. That this condition even causes tears. This condition is breaking families apart, breaking friendships apart and friend circles apart. Now, this thing is serious, y'all. Can y'all guess what it is? Sin, what else? Y'all can't guess? This condition is called FOMO, the fear of missing out. Urban Dictionary defines it as the mental and emotional strain that is caused by the fear of missing out. Now, FOMO can look like many different things. So when, when, when Janelle and I have people over at our house and our dog's in the garage in this crate barking like crazy, he's experienced some serious FOMO. <laughs> but he has some serious fear of missing out. He wants to get out and he wants to play. Or it could look like when the, the next big Christian conference comes up and I'm seeing all my seminary buddies going to the conference and I'm sitting at home because I have something to do and I'm salty, I'm experiencing serious, info, serious FOMO. And, and, I'm, and I'm dreading the day when everyone comes back and I'm like, hey, how was the conference? And they're like, man, some of the best preaching I ever heard, man. I started crying. I'm like, FOMO strikes again. <laughs> now, the, the, the effects of FOMO and college students, you, you all know this very well, that it can look like y'all skip over some stuff that really should get done. So, for example, you're sitting down and it's 12 a.m. and you know the paper that you have to write is 10 pages and it's due 8 a.m. the next morning. You're sitting in your dorm room and your friend comes up and is like, hey, man, want to go to the state fair? You're sitting there like, oh, FOMO strikes. You, you got to put down that paper and go to the state fair. You come back in and, and regret it. <laughs> the thing is, it causes mental and emotional strain at the thought of us missing out on something amazing or fun that is about to happen. But family, I think that there's a different problem with the church. Oftentimes with the, with the church, the problem is not that we experience FOMO. The problem is that we don't experience FOMO. That we don't have the fear of missing out of God's glorious mission. The reality is that Jesus is on a mission and that if you're a Christian, Jesus has made you a missionary, that Jesus has given us the great commission and we are called to go out and make disciples, that he has made us a kingdom of priests and we are called to labor in the presence of God and to bring others into the presence of God. That The book of Revelation teaches us that we overcome in spiritual warfare by the word of our testimony, that us sharing the gospel and being on mission is the way that we live out spreading the kingdom. And the problem is that many of us don't embrace this glorious identity. And that when we see other people on mission and when we see Jesus on mission, we lack a desire to hop in. And so what I want us to look at in this passage is Jesus on a mission. The father has sent him to be the savior of the world, that he is in the business of saving souls from every nation and every people. And I want us to see Jesus is on mission, so get on mission with him. Jesus is on a mission, so get on mission with him. I'm going to look at three things about this mission. The mission is scandalous, the mission is urgent, and the mission is successful. The mission is scandalous, the mission is urgent, and the mission is successful. So our first point for today is the mission is scandalous. Somebody say scandalous. scandalous. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town 
and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So Jesus is sitting here. He has just finished his conversation with a Samaritan woman, or rather he's in the middle of this conversation. His disciples were in the town and they were buying food for Jesus because he was hungry. And so as they're coming back, they see their Lord talking with a woman and they are surprised. They're like, what is our Lord Jesus doing talking with a woman? Now, in order to understand this, you kind of have to understand the prejudice of, of that day. In that day, according to some Jewish thought, not all Jewish thought, that Jewish rabbis, which are basically Jewish teachers, Jewish rabbis were not supposed to be talking with women. That they, many, many uh, other teachers considered it a waste of time, and at worst, it distracted from serious study of the scriptures. That uh, even a, a, a rabbi, it was looked down upon for him, for him to even teach his wife the law or his child the law. And on top of that, Jesus is not only talking to a woman, but he's also talking to a Samaritan. That in that day, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. That they were, uh, they, they, they did not go through the, each other's countries. They did not have conversations with each other. The Jews really thought the Samaritans were kind of like half-blooded Jews. And that the Samaritans, they, the, the Jews believed, had a, a, a perverted version of the Jewish religion. And so not only is Jesus talking to a woman, but he's also talking to the forbidden Samaritans. And he's doing this smack dab in the middle of Samaritan territory. See, the reality is, is that Jesus' mission does not follow the world's morals or the world's laws. That a scandal is something that someone does that goes against the accepted morals or laws of that day. So when someone does something against those morals or laws, there's outrage. That Jesus here is going against everything that the rabbis taught and everything that his disciples knew. He was talking with a woman, which would have been scandalous to people in that day, and he was talking with a Samaritan, which would have also been scandalous. That he was not following the morals or the law of the current day. He was following and living out the morality of his God, and he was following the law of his God. That Jesus' mission is scandalous, and that uh, the, Jesus' mission reaches across the lines and the divisions of that day. Jesus reaches to both men and women. He brings them into his kingdom and calls them equal. There is no second class citizen in the kingdom. That Jesus, his mission reaches across racial and class lines. That Jesus looks at the Jew and he looks at the Samaritan and he looks at the Gentile and he brings them all together into his kingdom and he calls them equal. There is no second class citizen in Jesus' kingdom. That he looks across social lines. That the reality is that this woman, because of her sexual past and her sinful history, that she was looked down upon by her townspeople. They put her outside of their social circles. And Jesus pursues her, reaches to her, and brings her into his kingdom. That Jesus is bringing the outsiders and the insiders into his kingdom and calls them equal citizens in his kingdom. That Jesus' mission reaches across the political lines. That Jesus is not only for this nation or that nation. He is bringing Jews and Samaritans together and he calls them his own and he calls them equal in the kingdom of God. So my wife and I, that one time, we, you know, we were hanging out with some friends, and our friend had an anniversary celebration, and so we went to the mosaic shop. The mosaic shop is basically a place where you can, um, you, you know, you take a piece of wood and you put different small pieces onto it to make artwork. So we went there, and when we got there, we wanted to make a C for our house. At the time, we were newly married, so we wanted a, a C in our house that stood for Chavis. So we went there, and we found a big C, and we bought it, and we put it down on the table. On the table, there were different kind of containers 
where all the small pieces were separated. So in one piece, in one container, you had beads. In one container, you had glass. One container, you had bullet shell casings. In another container, you had, you know, maybe um, an earring. And so what, what, what the point was is that we were taking and reaching into all these different containers and taking them and gluing it onto our sea to make a beautiful piece of art. Family, this is what God is doing. That God sits down on the table and he looks at the world and he sees how we divide ourselves into separate containers and how we are in, in these containers that we look at all the other containers and we are further looking inward and inward out of fear of being like those other containers, that the glass is fearful of being like the bullet shell casing. The bullet shell casings are fearful of looking like the glass and they stay separated and they identify themselves by each other. But what God is doing is that he wants to make a beautiful piece of art. So God, he reaches his arm in one container and he takes men and he reaches his arm in another container and takes women and takes them and brings them and puts them into one uh, on his sea. And he looks into one container and he takes blacks and he, another container he takes whites and he takes Asian Americans and he takes Hispanic Americans and he brings them and puts them together on his sea. That he is looking and he's taking the outsiders from one container. He is taking the insiders from one container and he takes them and he glues them down onto his sea. That he's looking around the world and he is taking Republicans in, from one container. He's taking Democrats and he's taking independents and he is taking them and he is gluing them down on his sea to make a beautiful artwork. That by the blood of Jesus, God is bringing all different types of people from all different types of backgrounds and is breaking down the barriers that society and the world puts up. And by the blood of his son, Jesus, he is bringing them together at the foot of the cross and is making a beautiful piece of art. And the reality is Jesus is in the business of making mosaic art. And the world is, too. But what the world wants to do is have their sea only have one type of peace on it. They only want one type of peace. And family, we have to ask ourselves as the church, are we taking our cues from the world? That is the, is the worldwide church, are we shaped by the world's prejudice and the world's division and their accepted social norms? That oftentimes when we, when we look at our churches, we can't help but deny that our churches are just like the world. They only want one piece. Imagine the beauty of God's multi-ethnic church displayed in the world. That God's heart is to bring all of these people together and reconcile them at the cross. What, what could it look like, Redeemer, as we continue to further this vision in our own church? If, if we continue to see different people from different backgrounds come into our church, that all of the, the, the backgrounds and, 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 and people from different walkings of life, that they will come into this room and this room will be filled with them on a Sunday morning. What would it look like in our campus ministries as we pursue and, and, and break these cultural norms and cultural barriers and that we are reaching all different types of students? We, we want the, the jock and we want the nerd. We, we, we want the popular SGA person and we want the guys who are playing Yu-Gi-Oh. We, we want the international students and, and we want the domestic students. We, we want the African-Americans and we want the Africans. We, we, we want the Anglos and we, and we want the people from Eastern Europe. We want them all to be in our ministries. What could this look like? And what would it look like to follow Jesus into this mission? That Jesus, we see him 
going into this mission head on into Samaritan territory. And he's bringing his disciples in there and teaching them how to do it. What would it look like if we were apprentices of Jesus in this? What would it look like to follow Jesus in his heart to make a mosaic piece? That this, should, this vision should invade our church worldwide in, our, in the local expression of our churches. That Luke 10, the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us that we're not just to love a certain kind of people and, and discriminate over a certain type of people, that we are to love whoever comes within the sphere of our influence and have compassion upon this. Y'all, that Jesus is with us and that whatever is holding us back from doing ministry across culture or across political lines, across racial lines, whatever fear or pride or arrogance or hatred or whatever it is, that Jesus sees it and that he is moving towards you and he wants to overcome it by his love and his patience and his faithfulness to his people. And he wants to see this vision lived out and he's going to do it. The second thing about Jesus' mission is that his mission is urgent. Somebody say urgent. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And so I know as soon as I said Jesus' mission is urgent, a lot of you just felt a huge burden placed on your back. Because oftentimes in life when we hear the word urgent or when we have an urgent situation, what we're thinking about is this situation depends all on me and that no one is here to help me. And it requires immediate attention. And the, the thing that is pushing us into that situation to handle it is this fear that everything is going to fall apart and this fear that the ball is going to be dropped. But that's not how it is with Jesus' mission. That the, mission, the urgency of Jesus' mission is different. That Jesus has said that the burden of ministry rests on his back and that ministry depends on him. And that we are motivated by fear that the ball will drop. That Jesus wants us to be motivated by excitement and motivated by the desire to jump into something spectacular and amazing. It's kind of like this. It's, 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 it's like a basketball player who's on an all-star team. And this all-star team is in the finals. And they're playing and they're balling. And he hurt his knee. So, so he's on the sidelines. And he wants to get in the game so bad. He's like, ooh, coach, put me in, put me in. I don't care if my knee hurts. Ball is life, hoop is life. I need to get in the game, right? He is not trying to get in the game. It's not urgent he get in there because he feels like all the burden is on his back. This is an all-star team. It's going to win anyway, right? And he's not trying to get in the game because of fear. Fear is not driving him. He wants to get in the game because he wants to be a part of something amazing. 
that he wants to be a part of the championship team. It's, it's almost like if you uh, got called randomly someday and someone came to you and said, you know what, you have just won an all-expense-paid vacation to Disneyland and Disney World. You know what, we're going to fly you out there. You don't have to pay for the ticket. We're going to give you an allowance, as much money as you want to spend on whatever you want in Disney World. We're going to give you a sweet villa that you can stay in and relax and kick your feet up on the, uh, on, on, on the resort. And they say, oh, and by the way, guess what? That I called your boss and he's giving you two weeks of paid leave, even though you didn't have any paid leave left. And he is, and, 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 and the guy says, go whenever you want. Now, what are you going to do? I, I know what I would do. I'll run home. I'll be like, Janelle, pack your bags. Don't ask no questions. We leaving. We going to Disney World. We going to Disneyland. Janelle be like, what's going on? What's wrong? I'm like, hey, look, pack your bags. The, the car is running. Let's go. It's urgent. We want to jump in to something amazing and to something spectacular. That's the type of urgency of Jesus' mission, the urgency that, that he invites us into. So look at the text. The text, this part of our text, verses 31 through 38, is really structured around two proverbs or two sayings that Jesus has. The first one is in verse 35. It says, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest, in verse 35. And then in verse 37, it says, one sows and another reaps. Basically, Jesus is showing the urgency of his mission by these two statements. The first one points to the fact that there's a distance of time between sowing and reaping. When you sow, that there was four months, and then comes the harvest, the joyous day where you, where you reap the rewards of your labor. Jesus is saying, so, so imagine, Jesus was just talking with his disciples, and, and as he was talking with them, the, the uh, Samaritan woman left, and she goes to the town, and she's telling the people in the town, man, can this be the Christ? Can this be the guy that we're looking for? And so the townspeople are curious, and they're walking towards Jesus and his disciples. So as Jesus is talking with his disciples, you can see, like, imagine on the horizon, there's like a, a, a mass of people coming towards Jesus and his disciples. And what Jesus is telling them is that the four months that's usually between sowing and reaping is gone. Jesus is like, I have just sowed. I have just preached the word. I've just revealed myself. And look, come turn around. We got a whole town coming that the harvest is white and is ready. And the next thing he says, one sows and another reaps. This points to the, the teamwork and the diversity that happens in the agricultural business, that there's one person who sows and is breaking up the ground, and then there's other people who come in afterwards and come in and reap the harvest. Jesus is saying, that's what's going on here. Jesus is like, I have sowed already, and that you all weren't even around when I sowed. Y'all are coming in just for the reaping. Jesus is like, I've done all the work. All the work is already done. All y'all are doing is hopping in on something that y'all didn't contribute anything to. This is a beautiful picture of ministry. Ministry rests on Jesus' back. He will get it done, and he's inviting us into it. The disciples had no responsibility, and they almost literally contributed nothing. Y'all, this is what it's like for us in our mission. That Jesus calls us into his mission because it is ready. He calls us into it right now because he's made it ready. 
right now, that Jesus is enthroned in heaven and he's poured out his spirit and he has promised that he will advance his church. In Matthew 16, he has promised that the gates of Hades will not prevail or overcome his church, that he will uh, advance his church. So when we're in our workplaces, when we're ministering in, uh, among the church and when we're out and about loving people and, and sharing the gospel, that Jesus has promised that it doesn't rest on your back, that Jesus is like, I will bless ministry. I will grant the success and the church will never fizzle out or go away because I am committed to making it successful. That do you know that God's sovereign hand is orchestrating every situation and everything, even before you step into a situation to serve or to share the gospel? God has already been there orchestrating everything so that when you come in, you are already a part of what God has been doing and you are part of God, what God will do in that person's life. That God is in complete control. The Bible says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk into them. Do you know that God has literally, before the foundations of the earth, planned out the good works, the fruitful works that his church will do? And all we have to do is get in the game and walk in them. Do you know that God has sent his spirit to be our helper? That the Bible says, it, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you know that the Holy Spirit inside of you has taken the responsibility onto himself to say, I will give my people the desire to labor for me and I will give my people the ability to even work for me. That you are jumping into it, but behind the scenes, that Holy Spirit is responsible for the church entering into his mission. And that when you share the word and that when you love people, even then it doesn't even depend on you. When's the last time you breathed on somebody and they were regenerated and they got saved? <laughs> right? God is the one who saves people's souls. I never saved anybody's souls. I've shared the word. And God has moved and saved. So family, I hope we could take courage that God is the one who is preparing the harvest. God is the one who is sowing. God is the one who gives us the sickle to reap the crop for eternal life. And we need to hop in. The second thing that we see um, about it being urgent, it's urgent because it's ready and it's urgent because it's joyous. Look at verse 34. Verse 34 says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. I think it's beautiful that Jesus uses these uh, illustrations and these metaphors to talk about how satisfying and how joyful his mission is. That ha have you ever been super hungry? Like in high school, I, I was a wrestler, so we had to cut weight all the time. And so I couldn't eat a, a, a much until it was time for weigh-ins. But, but you better believe after I weighed in and I made weight, I had a list of all the things I was about to eat. I was like, man, I'm going to go to Subway. I'm going to put all this down. Man, I'm going to get some General Sal's chicken from da, da da That That's what Jesus is saying his mission is like. That as Christians, we should be hungry to jump in the game. And that when we get in there, there's a satisfaction and a fulfillment that comes in walking in obedience to God's will. That all throughout the world, every, uh, many cultures and many religions have harvest festivals. And that's because universally it is recognized that it is a joyous and, and, and celebrative thing when the harvest is ready. E even the Jewish religion had a harvest festival. Our, our, the harvest festival was called Pentecost. 
that the day of Pentecost was a harvest festival where they celebrated the incoming of the harvest. Family, this is what it's like to be on mission with Jesus, that there is deep satisfaction in store for us and that there is deep joy in store for us. What could it look like to jump into mission at Redeemer and experience the joy and satisfaction of laboring with Jesus? What could it look like for you to jump into work life and for you to work alongside work life and to see people become trained and, and, and equipped to enter into the workforce and to, and to be employed and, and, and to see them discipled? What could it look like to jump into the youth ministry and to partake in discipling young men and women and to sharing the gospel and serving people and loving on people and affirming them? What could it look like to jump into ministry in the neighborhood and mission abroad more and to pray for our neighbors and to be present with our neighbors? What could it even look like to move into the neighborhood as a missional move and to be intentional about loving our neighbors and sharing the gospel with our neighbors and leveraging our relationships in the neighborhood for the gospel? What could it look like to volunteer with sister cooks and to disciple young women and to grown women? What could that look like? The joy and satisfaction in store for us there to know that Jesus is using us to save souls and to advance his kingdom. What could it look like for our RUFs, for college students, for y'all to jump onto the leadership team or core teams and to invest in your college ministries and to serve by uh, leading a small group, to serve by, by upperclassmen, possibly linking up with freshmen and encouraging them? What, what, what could it look like to serve food at large group? The joy of knowing that you are being used and by Jesus in a meaningful way? What could it look like to jump into ministry in everyday life, to watch your coworkers come to faith in Jesus through your testimony? What could it look like for one of your friends or coworkers who have never felt the love from another person, for you to just simply love them in the little things of life and for them to feel the love of Jesus through you? What kind of satisfaction and joy could you experience there? And could it be family that if we're spiritually dry, and we're experiencing kind of a spiritual plateau, and we feel like we've lost the joy of our salvation? Could it be not that we need more devotions and that we need more knowledge and we need more sermons? Could it be that we aren't experiencing FOMO? Could it be that we are spiritually dry because we are not entering into the joy and satisfaction of what it is to be on mission with Jesus? That some of the most joyful and thrilling experiences of my Christian life have been serving others in and outside of the church. Watching people come to faith by me sharing the gospel. Watching people be encouraged and feeling loved by me loving them and being there for them. Watching people's lives change, even when they rejected the gospel when I told them, I'm walking down the street and I see them a year or two later and they run up to me and say, hey man, I know I was a jerk earlier when you told me about the gospel, but man, Jesus is getting my life together. Thank you for sharing with me. Those are some of the most joy-filled moments I've ever had. That Jesus' mission is urgent because there's joy in store. And last thing, Jesus' mission is successful. Somebody say successful. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed 
the savior of the world. So what happens is that the people, remember the people on the horizon, they come to Jesus and he's sitting there talking with his disciples and they invite him to come back to the town. So, they, so Jesus goes back to the town with the Samaritans and they're hanging out with the Samaritans for two days. They're talking about the gospel and Jesus is teaching them and they are coming to faith. More and more people are coming to faith. And what the townspeople said, man, we already believed because of the Samaritan woman's testimony. But now we're even more confident in the belief we already had. That we have seen for ourselves that Jesus is the savior of the world. What's beautiful about this here is that this term savior of the world, it only actually occurs once in any of the gospels. And this term savior of the world actually only occurs twice in the whole Bible when it comes to Jesus, that it occurs here and it occurs in first John. See, the Jews called their, their, their kingly figure who would come and establish the reign of God on the world. They called him the Messiah. But the Samaritans had a different name for theirs. They believed in someone who would come and bring restoration. They called him the Taheb. It is a beautiful thing that Jews and Samaritans are in the same town, a bunch of Jews and a bunch of Samaritans. And as they're coming together and as they're beholding the glory of Jesus, they're basically saying, you know what? You aren't the Messiah. You aren't just the Taheb. You aren't just the Jewish savior. You aren't just the Samaritan savior. You are the savior of the world. Jesus' mission is successful. And we see him bringing people to faith from both Jews and Samaritans. Jesus has set out to save the world. Another thing that we see about Jesus that is amazing, I believe, is that in, in, in the first part of this story, when, when Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman, that they, they're talking about living water. And Jesus says, I will give you this living water. And the, the Samaritan woman says, you're, you're going to give me living water? She, she says this. She says, um, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The Bible tells us that the town they were in was called Sychar, and it was near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. That the, the woman was saying, are you greater than the one who gave us this land and gave us this well? And Jesus says, yes, I am greater than Jacob. That I don't just give water from this well, that I give living water that leads to eternal life. It will bubble up inside of you to eternal life. Jesus is not only greater than Jacob, that Jesus is also greater than Joseph. Now you see here, Joseph was Jacob's son and Joseph lived a, a long time ago. Joseph, his brothers were jealous of him and his brothers sold him into slavery. They sold him um, and, 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 and they sold him into slavery in Egypt and he became a slave in Potiphar's house. And he was wrongly accused of adultery by Potiphar's wife. And what happened was he was thrown into prison and one day, Pharaoh has a dream, or should I say a nightmare? And he says, I need someone to interpret this dream. And someone in his court who was previously in prison said, you know what? The person who I was in prison with, he has a gift for interpreting dreams. And so Pharaoh took Joseph and brought him before himself. Joseph stood before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, Joseph, can you interpret my dream? And Joseph said, yes. Joseph said, you will have seven years of plentiful abundance that the land will produce a crop that we have never seen before. And then you have seven years of scarcity that you will have seven years of famine 
So what Joseph said, Joseph says, you know what we should do? We should appoint a man who is wise and discerning and appoint him over the land. And he is going to be in charge for over these next seven years to save up grain and wheat so that when the seven years of scarcity come, that we will have food saved up. And what Pharaoh says, you know what, Joseph, you said I should appoint a man and wise and discerning. But then Pharaoh says this, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. And so Pharaoh appointed Joseph as second in command over all of the land of Egypt. And Joseph was governing the land and bringing in a harvest that could not be measured and it could not be numbered. Family. Jesus is greater than Joseph. That whereas Joseph was the Lord of the harvest over Egypt, Jesus is the Lord over the harvest of the whole world. And whereas Joseph was bringing in a harvest of grain that could not be numbered, it could not be measured, Jesus is bringing in a harvest of people. And the book of Revelation says that he is bringing in a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And just as Joseph in Egypt was gathering grain for seven years, Jesus one-ups him, and he is gathering a harvest of people until the end of the age. And whereas Joseph went to prison before he became the Lord of the harvest over Egypt, Jesus said, I'm not only the one who gathers the harvest, I am the seed that makes the harvest possible. I have died so that the harvest can come in. Jesus says that truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the seed that fell into the earth and he died so that he can produce much fruit. And he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, being lifted up onto the cross, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus is greater than Joseph. He is the one bringing in the harvest immeasurable, innumerable, to stand at the throne of God, to worship him. And family, he has invited you into this mission. Jesus is on mission, so you should sign up on mission with him too. That this mission is scandalous, this mission is urgent, and this mission is successful. Will you join him? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about you and to preach you. To see that, Lord, you are the one who is bringing in the harvest. Lord, that your mission isn't defined or shaped by the world's prejudices or boundaries. Jesus, your mission crosses the boundaries that the world sets up that you're creating a beautiful artwork called your church and you're bringing in people from every nation, every tongue, every background to be engrafted into your people, to washing them with your blood and creating them and glazing them into a beautiful artwork. Lord Jesus, your mission is urgent, but not because it depends on us, Jesus, that we confess, Jesus, that we realize it depends all on you and that you are inviting us into the work that you are already doing. So, Jesus, would you give us courage to take risks, to be bold, to step into your mission, that we might see people hear about you and see you, Holy Spirit, blow upon people and bring them to new life. 
Lastly, Jesus, we thank you that your mission is successful, that Jesus, you are the great one who is enthroned and has poured out your spirit. And you are bringing in a harvest that cannot be numbered, that cannot be measured. And Lord, we look forward to the day after we have spent our Christian lives laboring and serving and loving and sharing the gospel and being on mission to stand at the foot of your throne and to praise you, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest. Lord, we love you. Amen.